0: Today on Something You Should Know, a smart strategy for the next time you have to use a public bathroom. Then your brain has a lot of flaws. It makes mistakes, it distorts memories, and it always wants
1: more. I mean, we know that from lab studies that the brain is constantly seeking for something better, even if you are in a very pleasant and happy situation. And this is the reason why we have progress, why we are inventing new stuff, why we are improving. Also,
0: why most pencils are not round but have six sides instead. And we're all being watched online and many of us don't really care.
2: And This is why in one respect this kind of surveillance is so remarkable because it is so neatly packaged with convenience. I mean, why are people so willing to share and expose themselves online? Because of the amazing conveniences afforded by digital technology. All this today on Something You Should Know.
0: Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi. Welcome to Something You Should Know. As someone who doesn't really relish the experience of using a public restroom, and I imagine there aren't a lot of people who do, one positive thing I've noticed since COVID is that public restrooms are a little cleaner than they were before, probably because fewer people use them, and maybe because there's more of an emphasis on cleanliness than there was pre-COVID. Still, the prospect of using a public bathroom is never enticing, so here's something to consider the next time you have to use one and you have to choose which stall to use. Head for the first stall, the one closest to the bathroom door. That should be your first choice. And your second choice should be the one farthest from the bathroom door. Those are the ones with the lowest levels of bacteria and likely the most toilet paper. A study of random public restrooms revealed that the first stall was the least used, which resulted in fewer germs and a better supply of toilet paper. This may be because people think that everybody uses the first stall, so nobody uses the first stall. They go to the middle stalls. And that's probably why the one farthest from the door is the second least used, because people think other people use the one farthest from the door, so I won't use that one. So people don't use that one. And here's another tip when you're in a public restroom. When you flush, stand back. There's a fine mist of water containing potentially contagious bacteria that sprays up when you flush, and it's not likely, but you could catch you never know from that. And that is something you should know. The human brain is pretty amazing. We all know that. We've talked about how wonderful the brain is on this podcast several times. Still, as amazing as it is, the human brain is really not very good at some things. It's easily distracted. It doesn't keep track of time very well. It doesn't do well under pressure. It makes mistakes. It makes miscalculations and misjudgments. And all these things might appear to be deficiencies. Compared to a computer, the human brain seems to have a lot of flaws. Yet maybe maybe those flaws are exactly what makes the brain so good. That's the argument of Henning Beck. He is a neuroscientist and author of the book Scatterbrain, how the mind's mistakes make humans creative, innovative, and successful. Hey Henning, welcome. Hi, uh, great to meet you. So explain how you think the, the brain's flaws make it so good.
1: I remember I had one teacher when I was like 16, 17 years old, and he told me, Henning, if we would be perfect, there would be no room for creativity, right? Because creativity is not about perfection. Creativity and doing new stuff, science basically, is um, coming up with with, uh, off-site ideas without knowing whether it's correct or not. And actually, it's the mistake in our thinking, the clever mistake that we do that separates us from the non-creative machines. Machines don't do any mistakes, but we do. So we are creative. So give me an
0: example of what that means. Like, what's a mistake that would then turn into something wonderful?
1: One thing is um, everybody is complaining about distraction. Uh, Everybody wants to be focused and in the zone during work. But in fact, um, if you are distracted, then you are open-minded for new stuff. Consider the alternative. If you would not be distracted throughout your life, you would never see offside ideas. You would never get inspiration. And it's interesting that the most creative people are the ones who get distracted most easily. And distraction, of course, sometimes you want to get focused, but usually distraction is a way the brain uses to get to better ideas.
0: So these things that we call flaws, you know, the, the brain doesn't remember things well, uh, it, it makes mistakes and misjudgments... Are they really flaws or are they serving a real purpose?
1: I mean, I wonder why we call them flaws or mistakes. Because we live in a world where we require people to work like machines. And we say that to people. We say to people, work efficiently, work focused. Don't get distracted. Don't make any mistakes. Um, head down and deliver, right? But this is not that we are good at. We are good at doing. Um, thinking out of the box talking to each other um, trying something without knowing before whether it's going to work or not Um, and this is really what pushes human mankind forward this is what we call progress Um, give it a try, give it a shot and see whether it's going to fly or not and the way our brain is, um, is working is right on that specific mental capacity because we are not we are not perfect but we are but we are trying and we are learning and this is way better than working perfectly
0: when we learn growing up you know we often hear kids say and i used to say why are we learning this i never ever will use this again in my entire life there's no point to this and the answer is often well you're learning critical thinking you're learning how to solve problems you may not need to solve this problem ever again but is that a valid argument
1: <laughs> no Um, I mean, every learning session has to start with the question why or what for. We are here to do something because this helps you to do this and that. Um, The best teachers I had did this. They stepped in front of the class and said, hey, guys, I'm here to tell you how to. And then we were all like, oh, this is interesting. And he asked us questions. How would you approach that kind of problem? And he let us try and he let let us fail and he let us stand up, stand up again. And this is really what learning and understanding uh, finally is all about. Well, learning
0: only seems to be valuable in many cases, like when you learn a language,
1: only if you use it. If you don't use it, you can learn it, but then you forget it. When I was in California, one of uh, some of my friends were from Spain, and the Spanish are always talking. And those were the ones who learned the language the fastest way because they always tried, they failed, they got feedback constantly, they put it in action. And this is how you basically improve yourself, not by learning everything by heart.
0: Yeah, well, the, the language... The language example is a good one because most people who have ever done it know that the best way to learn a language is just immerse yourself in a culture where that's the language.
1: Of course. If you want to learn Spanish, get a Spanish girlfriend or boyfriend. I mean, then you are totally in the culture and you have a purpose to learn that language. And this is is the most important thing, right? Give people a purpose to do something because otherwise there is no need to do something, right? Why would you learn a language because when you know that you will never use it? So uh, give a purpose, ask the what for and, and why questions at the beginning and then people will learn it very easily.
0: Talk about the flaw of the brain that allows us and sometimes forces us to choke under pressure.
1: This is a, This is an interesting one. When you are under pressure, something interesting happens. There are a lot of different possibilities that you could do. For example, if you do a penalty kick, there are many possibilities how to behave. You can can miss the kick or you you can score or there are so many different possibilities how how to move, how to behave. And all these different possibilities are constantly running in your head. And under pressure, all the filter mechanisms that usually sort out all the behaviors or um, actions that are inaccurate um, are not working properly. And sometimes a false action or an error occurs because um, these filter mechanisms are overloaded and they're not working anymore. And this is the reason why people, even pros, do mistakes. Even the simple, the, the most simple task can break down or the behavior can break down if you are under um, under stress because all these uh, all these brain functions are very are imbalanced suddenly but not everybody
0: crumbles under pressure some people seem to do okay so what's the difference
1: some people train they train how to cope with pressure so there is one training procedure called prognosis training um, that you put people in a in a secure environment in a training situation under stress and they learn how to cope with that stressful situation in that training situation. And uh, for instance, you, when, you are, um, when you have stage fright and you are afraid of giving talks and presentations, then you could say, okay, here, you only have one shot to do that presentation in this training session. If you do a mistake, it's, you have to find a way to, um, to deal with it. And so you put a lot of pressure in that training situation. And people learn how to deal with that stress. Another possibility is um, reframing. This is what a lot of um, professional athletes do. If they are in a stressful situation, they reframe or in, in simply put, they rename the situation. They don't say, oh, I'm under stress and this is, this is now I'm going to break down and such. They say, okay, this is a stressful situation. My body is now ready for action. I have trained that, I have the capabilities, and the stressful situation, that my heartbeat goes up and I, got, I get sweaty hands, is only a sign that I'm ready for performance. And if you relabel that situation, the stress will not cause that blackout, but will really improve your performance.
0: Talk about time and that we misjudge it. I always thought it was just me that misjudges it, but... I, <laughs> But everybody misjudges it. Some may be better than others, but, but and how does that play into this?
1: Um, well, yeah, time doesn't grow on trees. I mean, time is nothing that we find in nature. Time is something we have made up, made up, um, especially how to measure time—hours and seconds. This is this is nothing we find in nature. So the brain does not calculate or collect. Numbers like seconds or hours or days, we don't have a sense for time. We only have a sense for events, for, for what happened in our past. So what the brain does, it has something like a mental timeline um, and all the events in your life are put on this timeline. And if you have a lot of different and very exciting events and stuff that happened in your past, it really Um, gets a lot of place on that mental timeline. So it feels like your life is very long because you have experienced so many things. On the opposite, if everything is the same, if you are living your daily routine from day to day, from week to week, there is nothing special to remember and there are no highlights on your timeline. And retrospectively, everything gets shorter and shorter and this is why mainly... Older people say that time seems to fly because you don't have so many new events like if you are three or four or five years old, everything is so, so new, so exciting. And this is the reason why we remember our childhood or our, our yeah, from year 10 to 20 is very vivid and very long compared to the period between, let's say, 50 and 60
0: but it's situational, too, I think, that at any age, you can have events, experiences where time seems to fly and other times when it just seems to drag
1: on. And you might ask, what is the advantage of this of this behavior, of this procedure in the brain? But interestingly, because we are able to collect events and highlights in our life, we are able to... Um, to To create new ideas and new new thoughts, because we can we can replay um, events, we can play forward, we can um we can play it faster retrospectively. So it's not a fixed memory. It's not like we are storing events like on a hard disk drive, but we are collecting events and memories in a more dynamic way. And it can be wrong, it can be distorted, it can be elongated or, or shortened. But on the other hand, this gives you a great flexibility of putting all these events and highlights of your life together to a whole concept, to new ideas, or whatever new ideas you want to have. We're talking about the
0: flaws in the human brain, your brain. And we're talking with Henning Beck, a neuroscientist and author of the book, Scatterbrain, how the mind's mistakes make humans creative, innovative, and successful. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you, doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's
2: Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.
0: So Henning, what would be the advantage? What would be the purpose of the brain not remembering things accurately? Which it clearly doesn't. But yet, you know... I. I remember things from my childhood that I can go back and double check and uh, I'm right that you know the the house was that color the the you know everything yeah. about the memory is correct but a lot of memories I can uh, I can go back and check and they're not correct they I I I've completely
1: distorted that memory consider the alternative if you would remember everything accurately and very precisely it would be your your memories would not be very dynamic. This would mean that you are not able to redesign your thoughts and ideas because we know if the more you remember and the more accurately you, you remember stuff and the longer it takes to recall that memories, the less dynamic and creative people are. And it seems like that there must be some kind of price you have to pay to have that creativity potential and the ability to put memories and ideas together in a new way. Yes, of course, sometimes memories are false. They, but on the other hand, this gives you that flexibility. And, and studies show that the better your memory is and the more you remember, the less adaptive the system becomes.
0: Another flaw, or seemingly a flaw in the human brain, and it's one that's kind of a pet peeve of mine, is when people are faced with a lot of choices, like on a menu, and they just cannot decide, oh my God, I could have the chicken, or, well, but then the fish looks really good. And, and, and given lots of choices, the human brain has trouble
1: deciding. Yeah, this is what we call the overchoice effect. Um, meaning that we are very bad at choosing from many options. One reason for this is if you pick one option, um, you see what you're not picking. You see all <laughs> the alternatives. And then people are sometimes regretting what they have chosen because they see what they could have chosen as well. Um, this is one reason that people are overthinking the situation. And the, the second reason for for being in that trouble is that um, the brain is not very good at calculating all the different possibilities. This is very laborious. I mean, consider thinking about all the different possibilities on a menu. Um, this would take forever. And sometimes, um, the brain says, okay, stop it. I am not picking any option. And this is why people are in trouble if they have so many possibilities. Is there some advice for the, For people like that to, to, to short circuit that roll a dice or toss a coin. And in the very moment um, you 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 roll the dice, you have a feeling what number should not appear, because usually you have already made the decision subconsciously. You only have to realize it.
0: Ooh, well that sounds very mysterious.
1: <laughs> yeah, but uh, there is a lot of research um, about intuition and um, about how the brain makes actually deci- uh, makes decisions. Actually, usually the brain has already pick an option before you know it you know it consciously and um, you only have to put some stress on that situation so for instance toss a coin or ask a friend and um, then in this very moment the decision you made appears
0: yeah that's right because when I've been out to dinner with people who do that struggle thing well I mean like chicken looks good or the, the beef looks really nice I say, well, get the chicken. And then all of a sudden, no, I think I'll have the fish. Like when you put the pressure on to somebody, then the true decision pops up. And something else I find interesting is that a lot of times these decisions that people struggle with are the kinds of decisions that really, in the big picture, don't matter. Next week, exactly. you, don't, you won't even remember what you did order or didn't order. But in the moment, it just, it bogs down everything.
1: Exactly. And this is showing another very interesting thing. The brain is very good at making general decisions. Let's say, whether you wanna marry someone. This is a very big decision, but it's not possible to calculate whether a marriage is successful, right? There is no number you can put on it. There is no uh, KPI or anything you can score a marriage. No, but people do marry each other. But they are very bad at, if you have so many different options to pick from, This is very hard Um, and this is showing that it's a difference between making a general decision and the decision processes in the brain are very good at making decisions under uncertainty and um, picking an option.
0: Yeah, well I've heard that like in advertising, for example, that in a commercial you tell people to either call a phone number or go to a website. They tend to do neither one. Rather than just tell them one thing, and then they're more likely to do it.
1: Yes, this is another example in in marketing or selling. There there are different techniques um, that you somehow nudge people to do something by giving them one or two or three options, but not more. Usually, when you go to a, to a shop, um, or yeah, to a shop and buy something. There are usually three different options: one expensive one, one cheap one, and one in the middle. And people usually chose the one in the middle because this is this is probably the best guess. I mean, this is not extreme. It's it's um, yeah, it's it's not good. It, it, it's not best, but it's not the worst. And um, this is a nice technique showing that the brain uses what we call heuristics, um, mental shortcuts, in that situation where you seem to be overloaded um, by so many options. Um, You only pick one or two, you nudge people by giving them only, yeah, just a few options to pick from.
0: One of the seemingly big flaws of the human brain is that we're never satisfied. It seems that enough is never enough, that people always want more.
1: The general default mode of our thinking is we are only happy if we get more than what we expected. And this is why we can be trapped so easily. Into risky behavior because the brain is always longing for some some for some extra for some kick, and this might mean that under certain situations we are not behaving very wisely but very risky and very yeah in a way aggressively seeking for a kick or for a rush, and this is contradicting our general our general idea that we want to stay calm and um, choose wisely.
0: So much of the advice today is, you know, be grateful for what you have. But that's not really how the brain works. The brain no. always wants something more.
1: Exactly. And being grateful, I mean, this is great. This is cool. I mean, if you, if you want to be happy for, for a short period of time. But don't forget, all the great minds that changed the world, that invented something great, that pushed the human race forward, are the ones that are dissatisfied, that are not grateful those are the ones who have a problem that are dissatisfied that are annoyed and that and they say okay here's a problem let's work on this let's get happy it is not about being happy it's about the pursuit of happiness and um, this is this is something different and for the brain it is much greater and much more pleasant to try to be happy and be a bit happier than before than to stay happy because we cannot stay happy forever and we cannot be grateful forever. I mean, we know that from lab studies that the brain is constantly seeking for something better, even if you are in a very pleasant and happy situation. And this is the reason why we have progress, why we are inventing new stuff, why we are improving, because consider the alternative. We would still be sitting in in a cave in the Stone Age and wouldn't have... Um, wouldn't have invented so many great new things, right?
0: That is so important and profound because, you know, how often do we hear, oh, you're never satisfied. Well, exactly. That I'm human. That's what humans are never satisfied. If you're satisfied, <laughs> but, like you say, we'd still be living in caves.
1: Yeah, exactly. Satisfaction is boring. I hate satisfaction. I want to be dissatisfied in an optimistic way. That, let's say I have a problem. I'm really annoyed. I don't like it. But then let's work on it. Let's make it better and let's improve. And this is how all the great inventions and how how all the progress in human, in human mankind has ever been made and will be made in the future. Look at all the geniuses in history. No one of them was, was satisfied and grateful, right?
0: Well, what I like about this topic is we so often talk about the brain's flaws in the negative that, you know, that we make mistakes, that we don't remember things well, that we're never satisfied and that these are these are problems that we need to correct, but in fact, as you point out, these so-called deficiencies in the brain actually propel us in other ways, it's, and it's really interesting to look at that. Henning Beck has been my guest. He is a neuroscientist, and the name of his book is Scatterbrain, How the Mind's Mistakes Make Humans Creative, Innovative, and Successful. And there's a link to that book in the show notes.
1: Thank you, Henning. Of course. Thanks. It's been a pleasure.
0: something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Are you concerned about your privacy? A lot of people say they are, but still, people post a lot of private things on social media and we give out information about ourselves on the internet and And some of us have smart speakers throughout the house where people could be listening to everything we're doing because those smart speakers have microphones in them. Still, we like our smart speakers. We like social media. We like doing things on the Internet that require that we give up information about ourselves. Are we giving up too much information? Or maybe people don't really care that much. Here to discuss this is Furman de Brabander. He is a professor of philosophy at the Maryland Institute College of Art, and he is author of the book, Life After Privacy. Hi, Professor. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi, thank you for having me. So what do you think is the concern here? I mean, people know that their privacy has been compromised. People go on social media and tell a lot about themselves, and yeah, I guess some people are concerned about it, but it seems that for the most part, people don't care that much.
2: What's what's your take on this? I've argued that you know it's it's pretty dire. If you uh, look at survey the landscape of digital technology, it doesn't look good for our ability. Uh, as citizens and consumers, to protect our privacy. I have argued that we are uh, probably uh, the most significant, that we we digital consumers are the most significant agent of this surveillance, right? Everybody talks about the Facebooks and the Amazons that are watching us, but we are happily uh, signing up for this kind of surveillance we are happily sharing everything about ourselves on social media uh, i'm always amazed when i go on social media and i see the kinds of sensitive and intimate data uh, in, you know, information and details of lives that people are sharing online a- and their pictures of course that are very you know they expose plenty it, it looks to be nothing less than a, a rather profound social or cultural change in the last 10-15 years where you know we are more willing to open ourselves up and less concerned about what is watching us or who is watching us and what we lose in the process and what do we lose in the process what's the concern the concern is that we would actually lose our freedom that's the ultimate concern we we would lose our autonomy because the traditional argument is that the or uh, you know i'm a political philosopher, so i'm interested in what you know what philosophers have said about this for many years and what they say about surveillance the danger of surveillance is that as those who spy on you get to know more and more about you then they can more easily press your buttons without you even realizing it and get you to do things that you do not willingly sign off on um Ultimately, we have also seen throughout history that, that surveillance can be coercion itself, right? We have saw this in the totalitarian regimes of the previous century, uh, like in Stalinist Russia. Just being watched, just being exposed is a kind of threat in itself that curtails people's freedom, and it makes them far less willing to speak out or act out. So that would be the feared end that we would be traveling towards. So
0: but what has happened so far that causes alarm other than you know obviously if you're putting information on social media uh, anybody can see it but but do we know that anybody's doing evil with it or had there but what
2: what's the what, what's happened so far that that makes this so worrisome that is the million dollar question what you just asked and i would say first off that there's a generational divide when it comes to surveillance older generations are less comfortable with sharing the private data Uh, that is not the case with younger generations I've noticed this in my college students that I teach and also in my teenage kids but the kind of surveillance that
0: people talk about today is you know okay so Amazon knows your shoe size I mean this is not like Stalin watching to see if you're up to subversive activity Amazon knows your shoe size so where's the
2: possible harm in that there is not much you know, we haven't really seen much yet uh, evil (laughs) that has come from digital surveillance. I mean, we have a history, we we have lessons from history in the past that point out that regimes, that totalitarian regimes will turn to surveillance in order to coerce people. But As yet, it is unclear what kind of harm can come from the surveillance that Amazon and Target are doing. Um, I put in Target because they have the famous case where they were figuring out that their customers were in the second trimester of pregnancy. And when people object to that, They object by saying that that's creepy. That's how people often object to surveillance uh, programs that they don't like. They call them creepy. And creepy is a great term here because it suggests that you feel something is wrong, but you can't say what. So the conclusion is really we don't really know what the problem is. We don't really know what the threat is. It's all a matter of speculation. And the threat May not even be. I mean, if Amazon knows my shoe size,
0: that that could prove to be a good thing because if they have some extra shoes that in my
2: size and they go on sale and they can tell me about it, well, great. Exactly, and this is why, in one respect, this kind of surveillance is so remarkable and perhaps nefarious. I mean, if it is threatening in the end, this is why it would be so nefarious because it is so neatly packaged with convenience. I mean, why are people so willing to share and expose themselves online? Because of the amazing conveniences afforded by digital technology, right? So yes, Amazon... What do they do? The more they collect about us, the more they're they're able to offer us. And the more we interact with them, the more they know. The more they can reach us personally, the better service that we will receive. And yes, more money companies will make, but we will be happy in the process. You know, we'll we'll be better satisfied by these companies if they can pinpoint us directly and sell to us directly by knowledge that they have accrued from our uh, our digital interactions.
0: What do these big retailers and these big surveillance people, how do they respond to the concern?
2: They, they They respond in a variety of different ways. Apple has responded by touting all kinds of privacy protections that their products would offer. Facebook is interesting. Mark Zuckerberg has an interesting quote where he said, this is this is just a cultural change now that they're taking advantage of, right? That people are willing to share more. Um, that kind of ignores the fact that Facebook has played a very significant role in changing the culture, in making us more apt to share. Amazon doesn't speak out about it. I mean, in general, these companies are not terribly forthcoming about these products, these, these programs, I should say. So it's a varied landscape. So it would seem though that
0: if because people are getting more and more concerned and there's more people like you you know shouting from the rooftops that this is a potential problem you would think that Amazon and Target and these companies facebook would would be doing what they can to kind of oh not to worry but
2: they they don't seem to say much of anything well it's because their business plan is modeled is sorry, is dependent on this kind of sharing. I mean, they can't go back, right? Amazon can't go backwards. They need to go forwards. They, they're able, their whole marketing plan is premised on uh, extracting our data. Un- understood. But what they person. could say,
0: what they could say, though, is, look, yes, we collect this information, but we have safeguards in place where, you know, we're, we're not headed towards uh, world domination here. We're just looking at your shoe sizes and things like that. And it isn't stored in a place where it can, you, you know, they could do something to kind of ease people's apprehensions,
2: but they don't. They could. They did that in Europe, but they didn't do it here. Right. The privacy advocates in America would very much like the those companies to be to do that in America. But those regulations, they've been not able, you know, um, you know, the privacy advocates have not been able to persuade Congress to enact these regulations. I guess the tech law, you know, it's clearly the tech lobbies are very powerful. Just seems like bad PR
0: to me. Like they would you, you would think you would want to be proactive when there's a concern to to make sure people know there's nothing nothing here nothing to look
2: at no move on well i think that's very telling don't you i mean i agree with you but if they don't feel motivated <laughs> to to issue that pr statement i think that suggests they know the state of privacy and the state of our concern i mean a lot of people quite frankly don't care about privacy at least in america europeans they've they have said they care about privacy i think we have to wait and see if their actions, you know, speak louder than words. Now they have their privacy regulations enacted, but Americans, you know, they just do not reveal that they care terribly about it. So I think, you know, they'll, you know, if, if these companies feel the need to make these PR statements, I think they would,
0: because people could, if they're very concerned about privacy, they can be careful about what they put on social media or whatever, but. If you have an Alexa speaker in your house, you don't remember that it's there all the time. And you're just talking away, and obviously somebody can hear you. Right. And nobody cares.
2: No, 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 they don't care. (laughs) But I mean, um, this has been borne out by various polls, you know, that people... They just don't seem to be terribly worried about this kind of stuff. Soon after the Edward Snowden allegations about the NSA, uh, the Pew Research Institute did a uh, a polling of people, you know, what do you, who are you worried about listening in? Or what kind of surveillance or what kind of spying are you worried about? The bottom was government. <laughs> Next to the bottom was police. At the top was your friends. You know, they were, people were more concerned about friends and family chasing them down, following them, spying on them on social media. So people just are not really worried about, certainly not Amazon, you know, that tends to be of the nature of a kind of a pleasant spy that when they listen to you, oh, then they might go ahead and reveal a certain product you never dreamed of that you would like, you know? Well, you started our discussion
0: by saying you've looked at this and the situation is dire. It's pretty bad.
2: Well, what what does pretty bad mean? Well, what pretty bad means is you don't even have to be blabbing online for your spies to know about you, right? They, I took a good look at data collection and data analysis, and we consumers are not well equipped to understand how so- the sophisticated science, right? Um, so the regulations in Europe, the privacy regulations are all premised on consumer autonomy, that companies will tell you what they're looking for and you can understand it and you can say, okay, I'll share with you or I'll not, I won't share with you. But what examples like the target case reveal is that we have no idea, A, what our spies are looking for, B, what they do with that information, you know, we don't know, we have no idea. So the, the case of Target, for example, was where they were determining when women were pregnant in the second trimester, no less. So very specified. And I routinely ask audiences, I say, so what kind of data do you think that they were collecting or that were the salient tip-offs? And people invariably have a very difficult time identifying the salient tip-offs. Those tip-offs, are some collection i mean i'm talking about the target researchers it was some collection of cotton balls vitamins and lotions when women buy those in quick succession that reveals that they are pregnant and in a certain stage of pregnancy now looking at that in retrospect that makes sense but you know we can't be expected to pick up on that at the get-go right that is a highly strange and unexpected collection of of products and purchases Um, Another example I like to give is that uh, a Canadian retailer said that um, determines uh, credit worthiness on the basis of one, there's one purchase they determined that is especially uh, predictable for credit worthiness. And that is if you buy felt pads to protect your furniture. Okay. Now, again, who is going to know this? How are we possibly able to understand what our spies could learn from us? Besides the fact that increasingly they don't even need our data, our metadata will do, which is the data of our data, when and where and how we make emails and phone calls and the like. And we also know that Facebook has uh, profiles of people even when they're not on social media, even if they are just invoked by members of social media
0: but isn't this just kind of an academic exercise in the sense that the genie's out of the bottle i mean you 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 can scream and yell and and tell people you know the sky's falling but nobody seems to care and so and and life goes on i mean you can only do so much
2: well uh, that's my my position is the genie is out of the bottle but the institution of uh, privacy advocates aren't they're not on board with that they they do not accept that conclusion I, I agree with you. I think the genie's out of the bottle and if COVID has pointed out anything to me it's that you know our dependence on digital media is only going to grow deeper and these digital media of their na- their nature make our data vulnerable. So there's really no going backwards. So it's just a matter of us understanding again what are the terms and ingredients of political freedom and democracy. And that's what we have to focus that's what we have to turn to. That's what we have to focus on. By doing what by the, the the key in my view is not the private sphere it's the public sphere it is the public realm it is how we act as citizens with one another and the public realm I argue is in pretty bad pretty bad shape too you know suburban America has really uh, hurt public spaces you know once upon a time our cities and towns had these town squares. Uh, which were non-commercial of their nature, and they were designated for the public to convene and to act like a political entity. Uh, Nowadays, what is the public sphere of choice? Well, where I live in my suburb of Baltimore, that would be the mall. That's where people go to be public. But the mall is not even a public space. It's actually a private space. And if you go in there trying to be political, they will escort you out. And then the other issue, of course, is that we kind of, you know, many of us like to think of you know, the internet as a public space. But if anything, that the Trump years have shown is that it is a very poor substitute for a public space, and it is really detrimental to democracy.
0: Well, it's a pretty interesting topic that affects everybody, because we're, I mean, I I imagine there's still a few people who don't have much of an online presence. But the convenience and the, the pleasure that people get, it's very alluring. And and, uh, and so the, the story continues. We'll see where it goes.
2: Absolutely. And even for those people that are not online, Facebook knows you. Don't worry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, whether or not people are worried or concerned about their privacy information, it is clear that companies are collecting information, that people have our information. And uh, you got to wonder what's going to happen to it. Furman de Brabander has been my guest. He's a professor of philosophy at the Maryland Institute College of Art. And the name of his book is Life After Privacy. You'll find a link to his book in the show notes. You know, about 14 billion pencils are produced every year worldwide. Of course, pencil lead is not really lead. It's a mixture of graphite clay and water. It's called lead because the person who discovered it back in the 16th century believed he had found lead. Graphite is actually a type of carbon, and the word graphite comes from the Greek word meaning to write. You might think that the reason pencils have, or most pencils, have six sides is to prevent them from rolling off the table. And while that's a nice benefit, it's actually not the primary reason. The primary reason is money. A round pencil would be comfortable to hold, but cost more to make. A square pencil would be cheap to make, but uncomfortable to hold. So the hexagon pencil is the compromise. You can make nine six-sided pencils out of the same wood it would take to make eight round ones. Today, most people say they prefer the hexagon pencil, in part because it doesn't roll off the desk. And that is something you should know. I get so many nice emails from people who really enjoy the content of this podcast, and the fact that you've come to the end of this episode means you've listened all the way through, so you probably enjoy the content of this podcast, and I hope you will share it with someone else so they can do the same. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.